Good morning, church. Uh, today's scripture reading is James 5, 13 through 20. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1013. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Today we finish up our study in the book of James. Real wisdom, real faith. James is a very practical letter, as you've seen if you've been with us. And, and, he, and he has been trying to help us, teach us how to live as a Christian in a broken and sinful world. We know the world is broken. We know that the world is sinful. We know our hearts are sinful. We need wisdom from above. We need faith, real faith, real wisdom to live in a complex world. And now in this final section, you would think that James would kind of land the plane smoothly, tie things up in a nice bow. But that's not James' style, is it? If you've been here, you know James is direct and forceful. He confronts not only the suffering that the original audience was dealing with, but the temptations that came along with their sufferings. And they were grumbling and using their words to tear down and treating people differently based upon how much money they have and and on and on and on. And he says, no, 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 no. I need to help you now. You You need to hear this as clearly as I can. And so these final verses are not a change from his normal direct style. In fact, these verses are arguably the, arguably the hardest to interpret in the New Testament. So, thank you, James, for, for this. We're going to have some heavy lifting to do as we seek to understand what this passage means because there's some dangers. It's like walking on a tightrope, right? Once you're, if you're on a tightrope, which I hope you've never been on, but if you are, Uh, It's safe while you're on the tightrope, but there are dangers on both sides. And you need to be careful not to fall. Today's message is entitled, The Power of Prayer. Here's the big picture, before we get into the details. Big picture. James wants to convince us of the power of prayer. Listen, we will all respond to life's trials in different ways. Something happens to you, 
And you have various ways to respond. Some of us respond by just grinning and bearing it. Others of us just throw up our hands or whining and complaining. Others get defeated very quickly. Let me just ask you, how do you respond to the trials of life? How do you respond to the joys of life? What's your knee-jerk reaction? What comes naturally to you? James wants us to know that when we face trials, temptations, even joys, prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Why? Because prayer can change your life. Prayer can change your life. Prayer can change the world. Do you believe that? Do we actually believe that? That's what James is trying to get at. He wants us to know prayer changes things, and he wants us to know there's power in prayer. And so his first point right off the bat is, prayer is the right response to any situation in your life. Look at verse 13 again. James says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. The word for praise is the word psalm. In other words, let him sing prayers. Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders and let him pray. Are you suffering? James asks. In other words, are you dealing with a situation that is beyond your control? Are you discouraged? Are you anxious? Are you frustrated? Are you confused? Are you sick? And his answer is, pray. That's it. He doesn't give us anything more here. Pray. And, uh, and here's what we think. Immediately we think, give me something more, James. Right? Give me something tangible. Help me do something to know I'm actually doing something that can change the situation. And right there, right when we say that, it reveals our hearts that we don't really believe in the power of prayer. We look at prayer not as a first response, but as a last resort. We think prayer is a waste of time. We think prayer is for those who are helpless and weak, but we are competent. We are capable. We can do stuff. Give me something to do. And James says, what if your greatest doing is not doing? What if prayer is your greatest weapon against the powers of darkness? What if prayer is the most strategic and courageous response to your suffering right now? Well, it is. Don't you see? James is saying prayer is always the appropriate response to life's challenges. And James isn't alone in this. The Apostle Paul, Jesus, they, they all say the same thing. Paul says, pray at all times. Ephesians 6. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Look, there is no situation you are dealing with today where prayer is not the right response. It may not be your only response. So hear that. It may not be your only response, but it is never the wrong response. You see, suffering has a way of, of twisting Things in our hearts 
and, and, and we start to get uncertain and we start to be confused and we start to question the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the faithfulness of God, and, and we lose our way, right? That's what suffering does. It, it gets into our hearts. It's not just what happens externally that's really hard. What, 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 what suffering does is it gets inside of us. It does something inside of us. And what prayer is, it's a response that keeps us trusting God's heart even when we don't understand his ways. So are things hard right now? Pray. Pour out your heart to God. Are things going really well? Did you get a raise? Did you get a promotion? Did you get a new relationship? Did you find out you're pregnant? Praise God. Sing in the form of a psalm. Sing praises for his kindness and goodness. That's not wrong. It's it's not wrong. Don't be ashamed if God has done something good. Share it. Enjoy it. People who love you will enjoy that, will, will share in that if they really love you. Look, if you're like me and you're watching, either watching the news or reading the articles and seeing the horrifying images coming out of Ukraine, and, and, and you're tempted to think like me, what can I do against such evil? And some of you might be thinking, like maybe that's crossed my mind, like I want to get on a plane and go over there. Like, I want to be on the ground. I want to help with the humanitarian efforts. I want to share the love of Christ in tangible ways. I want to do that. And maybe a few of us can. And if you can, feel free. We'll support you. Whatever. But listen, for most of us, what can we do? Thank you. Pray. And don't think for a second that's a throwaway answer or a cop-out. Prayer may be the most courageous thing you do today. Do you believe that? Lesson number two. When sick, believe in the healing power of God and rest in the sovereign will of God. This is where things get dicey. All right, you got your thinking caps on? Verse 14. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The difficulty here is we have to decide what are some of these terms mean. Is he referring to physical sickness or as some might argue, spiritual sickness? It's also difficult because we all know personally, firsthand, people who were sick and have not been healed. What do we make of that? And I'm going to be careful as I'm treading through this because this is a painful topic. When you're struggling with sickness or you know someone who, who is, we can't help but ask questions like, is God punishing me? Is this my fault? Can God really heal me? Does God really want to heal me? These are hard questions. This is a hard topic. I know personally how challenging this is. My dad died of sickness. Not only that, there are some who have taken this passage and twisted it into saying things that it's clearly not saying. The Roman Catholic Church has one of their sacraments at the end of life called extreme unction where they do this and you, and you need to do this so you can skip purgatory, go to heaven. If you don't do it, you're not sure. 
Some use this, and they call themselves faith healers, and they go travel around, and, and that's clearly not what this text is teaching. And so we need to wrestle. We need to figure out what is this saying. All right, first of all, is this referring to physical or spiritual sickness? Verse 14, is any among you sick? Sick. Astheneo, Greek word. It could be used to describe a weakness of any kind, which is why some Try to inter- want to interpret this as, as a spiritual sickness, a discouragement. They're, they're, they're struggling spiritually. But listen, in all the gospel accounts where this word is used, used, and in other Greek writings, this word is always used to refer to physical illness. In fact, we have a close parallel passage to James' instruction here in Mark 6, where Jesus sends his disciples out and he says this, that they, the disciples, anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. And almost word for word. And that was clearly physical healing there in Mark's gospel. And we know that James is the earliest New Testament letter written, and he relies heavily on the teaching of Jesus. And so for all these reasons and more, I think James is most likely referring to physical sickness here. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What is the prayer of faith? Here's what we know it can't mean. It can't mean that the healing is determined by the level of faith in the elders or even the sick person. It can't mean that. And I'm, I say that because there are some who have been scarred by this, thinking that, that if I've not experienced healing, if God has not answered a prayer, it's because, well, here, in the case of this, that the elders didn't have enough faith, or if you're the sick person, is this my fault? Is it the lack of my faith? No, no. Listen to me and look at me. No, that's never the case. How can I say that with such certainty? Because healing is never determined by the strength of your faith. In the New Testament, it is never the strength of your faith that matters. It is always the object of your faith that matters. I'm going to say it again. It is never the strength of your faith that matters. It is the object of your faith that matters. By object of your faith, I mean Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that matters, not how much faith in Jesus you have. And if that can free some of us who feel plagued and burdened by, I should have prayed harder, I should believe more, I don't have enough faith, am I even a Christian? No, it's the object of your faith. In Mark 9, Jesus is approached by a man who's asking for healing for his son. His son is possessed by some kind of evil spirit and it makes, him, it makes him do all kinds of horrible things to himself and the, and the guy is crying out to Jesus for help and Jesus essentially says to him, do you, do you believe I can do this? And the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. You remember that? I, I believe you can. I've seen you do it other. I believe you can. But help my unbelief that's still there. That was a prayer of faith. The man's son was healed by Jesus. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It doesn't mean you have to absolutely be convinced God must heal in this situation. Listen, there's no such thing as commanding God to do something. We don't, we're not in a position to command 
A, a subordinate in the military doesn't go to his commanding officer and command the commanding officer to do something. Do they? If I'm wrong, correct me later. All those in the military. Please help me know if that's allowed. Prayer is about asking, not demanding. The prayer of faith, the simple definition, is a, what he's saying, it's a very simple and direct request. I'm asking God that you heal this person. We are asking that you would bring miraculous divine healing in this person's body. We ask that you would do it. We trust that you can do it. But saving this prayer of faith, true faith, always recognizes the overruling providence or plan of God in all circumstances. In other words, we pray with genuine faith that God, believing God to heal, but that genuine faith acknowledges that since God is the one who has the power to heal, that we trust His sovereign will in choosing whether He wants to heal in the time and in the way that we ask. We have to read this in light of the entire New Testament because it's clear from if you read your Bible, you know God does not always heal a believer physically. And the perfect example of this is the Apostle Paul himself, a man who went around healing others in the name of Jesus. And he writes half of the New Testament by the very word and authority of Jesus. I mean, this is an apostle. And yet, in 2 Corinthians 12, he's got a thorn in the flesh. Something was wrong. He's physically suffering. And he prays three times, Lord, take this away. And the Lord's response is, no. Is there a man who has more faith than the apostle Paul? He's done this before. Why? Why no? Why does God say my, my grace is sufficient for you? My grace is going to be enough for you and my power will be made perfect in your weakness. Why is that the answer? Because he had a providential purpose for that thorn in his flesh that Paul didn't understand, that we may never understand, but that God did. We have empirical evidence that the mortality rate of humanity is still 100%. Which should testify to the fact that all of us eventually will succumb to either sickness or injury or old age. And so this prayer of faith is ultimately faith in God whose will and plan is best. And sometimes that prayer of faith leads to physical healing and we praise God for that. Did you know that in our church, in our history, we've had people miraculously healed? Did you know that? And it wasn't because of a special prayer that me or anybody else did. It wasn't because of the faith of that person. They just, we simply prayed in faith. The cancer's gone. The tumor's gone. The doctors took a scan one day. They took a scan the next day. It's gone. How is that possible? The doctors don't even understand. And they can figure out what, however they want to explain it away. And we walk away going, you are amazing, God. That's ridiculous. How do I get to see that? Where is the tumor? And then there's some times where he doesn't. And I wish there was a, well, you would think there'd be some kind of formula to get it right. No. That's why when Jesus invites us to pray, he says, John 14, 14, if any of you ask anything 
in my name, I will do it. Anything in my name. To ask in Jesus' name doesn't just mean we say his name. I want a Mercedes-Benz in Jesus' name. I mean, literally, you think that's what Jesus is thinking? Just say his name. Just name it and claim it. This from a man who went to a cross? You think that's what he means? No. It means to take into account his will. To have your will aligned with his will. And those wills uh, and those prayers are always granted. Prayer for healing offered in confidence that God will answer does bring healing when it is God's will to heal. That's all I can say. The, the next part of verse 15 is tricky too, though. It says, The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James is saying, when a sick person is seeking physical healing, that Christian must also examine his or her own heart for sin to confess and to restore the relationship with God. Again, I have to go, what is James not saying here? He's not saying that sickness is always a result of specific sin. He's not, he's, he's not saying that. How do I know that? Jesus, again, James is drawn from Jesus so much. Jesus in John 9, man born blind, his disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that he is born blind? In other words, there's got to be a reason, a direct sin that leads to his, his sickness, his ailment. And Jesus looks at them and says, it's neither. It's neither. Nobody sinned to cause this man to be born blind, but that the works of God might be on display in this person's life. Not all sickness is because of specific sin. In fact, most of the time, specific suffering and specific sickness cannot be traced to specific sin. But the other danger, again, this is a, we're on a tightrope. That's one danger to think, oh, all sickness is a result of sin. No. The other side is to not think any sickness is caused by sin. James says, if he has committed sins. Paul says, and we're going to take communion today, that the church in Corinth was taking communion in an inappropriate manner and he says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We, I can't avoid that. Here's what James is teaching us. If you find yourself sick in any way, don't start beating yourself up over your sin. Please. But also don't ignore your sin. Sickness has a way of, of bringing us low. Right? It weakens you. It makes you vulnerable. It reminds you how, how little in control of your life you really are. Two years ago, I found myself, I've never been in the hospital a day of my life. No, well, that's not true anymore. But I hadn't until two years ago. I went on a run trying to be healthy, and I ended up in a hospital with a kidney stone. Never been in a hospital. Kind of a weakling when it comes to physical ailments. I'm in a hospital. It's the middle of COVID. Nobody can be there with me. I'm in the basement, shut off from everybody else, shunned. 
All right, maybe not shunned. <laughs> Felt like it. Nurses open the door, slide the food, they close the door back. Man, sickness has a way of bringing you very low, not just physically, but you feel it, right? You feel the vulnerability. You, you feel the, 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 um, how fragile life really is. It has a, and sickness has a way of putting things in perspective. You see how dependent you are on the Lord for every single day, every single moment of your life. Being sick is humbling. And because it's so humbling, it can give you a better vantage point to see your sin, to see your heart, and to turn from those things. So when you're sick and feeling the fragility of life, that's exactly the time to reflect on how your heart is doing. Not to lay on guilt, not to add on, heap on guilt. No, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying let the physical sickness lead to, to spiritual healing. Let the breakdown of your body in any small or large way become a time of spiritual renewal. That we can say with Paul that, that maybe outwardly I'm wasting away, but, but inwardly I can be renewed day by day. Again, this doesn't mean your sickness is a result of sin. It just means you're open to God, continuing to bring restoration and healing to all aspects of your being. And the sickness is, is, in a sense, God's grace in being able to do that. When sometimes when, when, you're, when you're well and you're feeling healthy, you feel like you can, you're, you're on top of the world. I'm going to live forever. So you find yourself in a hospital. So what is a Christian to do when they're sick? James says, let them call for the elders of the church. When you're sick, and this probably doesn't mean like every cold or... Sinus infection, right? There's a, a, a grade of illness here. I think he's talking about serious illness. Call the elders, he says. Notice elders, plural. Not the pastor. The elders. We have 12 elders in our church. Did you know that? 12 spiritual leaders. Two more on the way. Every one of these men that you have affirmed as an elder is called to be a shepherd pastor of this flock. And you should regularly give thanks for these men, their wives and their families. And you should regularly give thanks for their willingness to serve because they are a gift to this church. Let me also make a quick plug here to plead with you to become a member of a local church. Elders are responsible for shepherding your soul literally to the end. You realize, I, I didn't realize early on in ministry, I realize now one of my callings is life is to basically be ready for any one of you to come to the end of your spiritual and physical journey and to call the, any one of the elders and I want to be there with you at the end. I want to help you finish well. Our primary responsibility before God is to shepherd your soul. And who, who are we talking Who's you? When I'm talking to you, who is that? I'm talking to those who have made a covenant commitment to a local body of believers. If you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, hear me now, you are short-circuiting God's plan for you to live vitally connected to the body of Christ. And I plead with you right now not to delay any longer in disobedience to the Lord and identify yourself publicly, publicly with the family of God. 
If you want to know why that is so important, we have books at the book rack, pastors who can, elders who can answer that question. Please, we have a new members class to help you get on board to, to join. If you want to find another good church in the area, we pray for other local churches. Okay, what does this process look like practically at Grace? If you are sick and you prayerfully decide to call for the elders, we will come to pray for you as James instructs us. We've done this several times since I've pastored here. We will bring oil to anoint you. There's nothing magical about the oil. It's symbolic. Oil, anointing oil in the Bible is symbolic of something being set apart from the, for the Lord. Just like communion and baptism, what we're going to do today, are, are physical acts that symbolize a spiritual reality. That anointing of oil is a, is a physical act that, that symbolizes that person is being set apart, that they, are, that they are submitting themselves to the Lord's loving care as we ask for Him to intervene for physical healing. We will read this passage, discuss it, and then the elders who are able to be there will lay hands on you and will pray and believe God for a miraculous healing. And when you're sick, we will believe in the healing power of God and we will rest in the sovereign will of God. Lesson three. James continues driving home this point about prayer and he says, listen, God delights to answer the fervent prayers of his children. Verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Now he broadens it. This isn't just about the elders praying. He says every believer has the responsibility to pray for other believers to experience physical and spiritual healing. Members of our church sign a membership covenant that say, I recognize it's my privilege and responsibility to faithfully pray for the work of the church, its pastors, and the church family and for the advancement of the gospel. Are you doing this? Are you committed to fulfilling your covenant commitment to this body? We have a prayer meeting every Wednesday night. We do it because we believe in the power of prayer. Whether it's 20 people there, or however many people, 40, 50, we know that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. And we want Him to. We want to be committed to that. We want to carve out time for that. James is casting a vision here of a church where friendships are deep enough to share our struggles and our burdens without the fear of rejection. Notice he's talking about confessing your sin and praying for one another. Do you have people in this spiritual family with whom you can share your burdens and confess your sins? Do you have the courage and humility to do that yourself? This can only be possible when we spend consistent time cultivating meaningful and committed friendships in the body of Christ. And that's why we have things like Bible studies and small groups and Sunday morning classes. That's why we have those so you can continue to, to, to get involved, to be known and have others know you. Are you someone with whom others can see as trustworthy so that they can share vulnerably? Are you available for others to share? Are you so busy that they can never get a hold of you if they wanted to? Would you belittle their sin? Or would you excuse their sin? Or would you condemn the person who shares their sin? 
James's point is when you can do this, when you can share and pray for one another and confess sin, and he says there's healing power. Pray that you may be healed. It may be through your prayer that your brother, your sister breaks free from that addiction, breaks free from that habit, finds healing in their marriage, finds a, a deeper relationship with their kids or their in-laws and, or helps, helps them with, deal with their money. I don't know what it is, but we know that we need healing and God uses one another to provide that kind of healing. Prayer is one of the most powerful and loving things you can do for one another. Verse 17, Elijah, oh sorry, verse 16b, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person, who is that? At the most basic level, that's someone who's received the very righteousness of Christ by faith through grace. But James, when he talks about righteousness, he's he's usually referring to a Christian who's living out their faith. It's someone who's walking in the grace of God. And James says, for that person, there was great power, mega power in the way that prayer will work itself out in their life. And James says, let me illustrate this for you. And he brings up the, one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who was used by God mightily to speak his words and to perform great miracles. And yet notice what James points out. He was a man with a nature like ours. Verse 17, he was just like us. That's kind of an interesting thing to point out because if you know anything about Elijah's life and ministry, it doesn't look like ours, right? Elijah's calling the prophets of Baal out. You go put your altar down and you make a sacrifice and you call Baal and see if he'll come down and, 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 and pr- produce a fire and then I'll call my God, Yahweh, the true God, and, and they can't do it and they're cutting themselves and they're wailing and crying and Elijah's waiting and finally says, God, God of all creation, Yahweh, and he licks up that sacrifice and they realize God is the one true God. God... Elijah prayed that the rain would stop. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Elijah prays and it rains again. God answered in powerful ways. But what what James is trying to emphasize is that Elijah was like us because he had to pray just like us. Was he a perfect prophet? No. This man who was on top of the world as he was defeating Baal's prophets is the same man who runs up the mountain one day because a a lady was threatening his life and he's so discouraged and he's so lonely and he's so scared. He literally prays in 1 Kings 19, God, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I think you should end my life right now. And God, he didn't answer that prayer. Do you believe that your prayers can make a difference? Do you believe that you are like Elijah and you have the same God as Elijah? Are you confident in the power, not of the one praying, but the power of the one to whom you are praying? Or deep down, do you really wonder if God God will make any difference at all? If your prayers will make any difference at all? Be reminded this morning, God delights to answer the prayers of his of his children. He is your father. What good father will give a gift that's not good to his children? And finally, with much prayer, humbly seek out and restore wandering believers. Verse 19 and 20, James ends 
with this final warning, this final plea. He knows that that our faith is on the line, that, that living for Jesus in real, wise ways is hard. And so the final thing he leaves in their minds is, don't give up on each other. When a fellow believer wanders from the truth, James says, it's not just their problem, it's your problem, it's my problem. In a broken and twisted world like ours, it's so easy to walk down a path that we might think will make us happier, make us more fulfilled, something to make us feel more alive. And we don't know it because to us, it looks like Turkish delight. It looks so satisfying. It looks so good. We don't know that it's a wicked witch who's offering it to us. Wandering is a veering from living from God, by God's truth. It's a veering off. You're driving down a road, the road following Jesus, and all of a sudden you see a sign, and you're like, ooh, really? Stop here. All your dreams will come true. Ooh, oh, really? I know this is kind of the path. It's kind of the pilgrim's progress. I know this is the path, but ooh, really? We, and we kind of veer. We get off course. This looks like a pattern of spiritual indifference. It looks like a moving away from God, a moving away from other Christians. When you see these kind of things happen, beware. Be on guard. Your antenna should be up. It's your, it's, it, this is for you and not just for me. This is for all of us. And when James says, when that happens, you want to go on a spiritual search and rescue mission. You lovingly bring them back on the path that leads to life. You pray for them. You call them. You have lunch with them. You confront them. And you say, Mark, it, that's so awkward. Can I just leave that to the pastors? Don't you do the awkward hard work? Yes, we do. But verse 19 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders, he's talking to you. I'll be there for you. We should also be there for each other. When someone leaves their spouse because they're tired of being miserable or because they found someone else who's a better fit, that's not okay, and you go after them. When someone thinks more money will make them happy and they start to make decisions that are driven more by money than by kingdom priorities, it is your responsibility to humbly, lovingly show them the idolatry that is gripping their hearts. This is all of our calling. And yes, it's awkward. Yes, it is. I've been there countless times because you know what? You're risking the relationship. But that's what love does. Love takes risks. Love seeks the good of another even at the risk of your own discomfort and possible rejection. Why? Because you may end up saving a soul from death, James says. You may end up bringing a, play, a person to the place where their multitude of sins can be covered and forgiven by Jesus. I hope you see it. The Lord wants to use you like the shepherd in Matthew 18 who goes after the lost sheep in love and self-sacrifice. Because isn't that what this is all about? Why are we even talking about the power of prayer and living in loving community? Isn't, because, isn't it because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross as our good shepherd? 
You see, when you read this passage, can you see how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of it? When Jesus was suffering, what did he do? He prayed. When Jesus was, was cheerful, what did he do? He prayed. Jesus knew the power of prayer, didn't he? Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man like Elijah. He was the God-man. Every time he prayed, it was a prayer of faith according to the will of God. Every time he had perfect faith, it was his very calling in life to live the life of faith that you and I should have lived but couldn't because of our sin. And he literally healed every disease by faith. Well, why didn't he just keep on healing diseases? Why stop? Ah, because his primary calling wasn't just to heal us of our physical diseases, but to save us from our spiritual disease. You see, Jesus didn't just come to show us the perfect life of faith. He came to die the death we deserve because of our lack of faith. Aren't we all wanderers? When he says, if any among you who wanders from the truth, weren't we all at one point all wandering, veering from the truth? trying to live life apart from God? And guess who came to rescue us? The greatest rescuer ever. Jesus came down and says, it's not okay that my brothers and sisters are wandering. I'm going to come down on this great search and rescue mission. And he lives a life we should have lived. And he dies the death we should have died. Why? So he could bring us back. Bring us back to the Father. Oh, if the prayer of a righteous person has great power, what about the prayer of a perfectly righteous person? You see, when Jesus was on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. The prayer of the perfectly per perfect, righteous person doesn't just have great power, it has ultimate power. It has saving power. And so Jesus took all of our sin, all of our weakness, all of our suffering. He took all of our sin on the cross. What does Isaiah 53 say? He was crushed for our iniquities. So that by his wounds you may be healed. Healed in the deepest sense. Yes, pray for physical healing, but if that's all Jesus is good for, then we as Christians should be pitied. If all we have is this life, we should be pitied. Because we don't just need physical healing, we need spiritual healing. We need God to save us from death, eternal separation from God in hell. That's what we need saving from. That's what we need a rescuer for. And Jesus is that man. He saves from sin. He saves from death. He gives you eternal life. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity. He rescues you from sin and death now. And when you come to the end of your physical life here, he takes you to be with him eternally. That's the good news. Have you trusted in Christ today as your Savior? If you're not a Christian, you're like, I know this sermon is for all the other Christians. No, it's for you. This is for you. Don't walk out of here. You don't know when today will be, if today will be your last day or not. You need Christ as your ultimate healer. We all do. And Christian, one last thing. Did you know Jesus is praying for you right now? Romans 8.34, Jesus is interceding for you. He's praying for you even now after he's resurrected. He's praying for your holiness, your joy, your endurance and faith, your victory over sin. And if the prayer of a righteous person has great power, you better believe Jesus' prayers are being answered. Christian, are you resting in the finished work of Christ that God gives you unlimited access to the throne of grace? 
If you believe that, you'll run to him, you'll pray to him, and we'll see God work in powerful ways. Let's pray. Father, we do believe that you are the the great physician, the great healer. We know that at your word, you could heal any disease, any sickness. We also know that in so many instances, you choose not to. And we don't understand, Lord. We don't understand your ways. We don't understand your plans. And so we cry out to you in our confusion, in our uncertainty, in our struggles, and we just say, Lord, we want to rest in your power and your grace. We want to believe your power to heal, and we want to trust your grace to sustain us whether or not you choose to heal. We want to rest in the beautiful promise that whether we live or die, we belong to you. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. So God, help us to live in light of this promise. Even as we look forward to the day when you return and make all things physically new. As you make all things spiritually new even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.